study in the Psalms of Hope. Uh, We've looked now together at Psalms 13, Psalm 23, Psalm 27, and Psalm 30 together. And this morning we're going to be camping out in Psalm 31. Psalm 31, if you have a Bible with you and want to turn there, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to gift one to you. Uh, We have those at the info bar as well. Uh, Psalm 31, in you, O Lord, I take refuge. And we're going to be reflecting on the hope that we find in God's deliverance. Which bears the question, deliverance from what? In Christianity, we sometimes refer to the three enemies of the soul. There is the flesh, the devil, and the world. The flesh uh, refers to our personal sin. We are all born with uh, an internal, fleshly, fallen, sinful nature. The Bible tells us the devil, or Satan, is our external, supernatural, spiritual enemy, the embodiment of evil. But then there's this third category, the world. But it's a category that evangelical Christians like us have often struggled with. And so here's why. I'll give you a quick history lesson. Uh, Once upon a time, the Protestant church uh, divided along denominational lines by you know, second-tier theological issues. If you're Reformed theologically, you're Presbyterian. If you believed only bapt- uh, a believer should be baptized, you're Baptist. Um, if you believed that Christ was actually present in the elements, you were uh, Lutheran. Um, in the early 20th century, in the wake of the Enlightenment, the Protestant church was basically kind of began to be reshuffled and reorganized really primarily along two lines, two big camps, um, divided along one issue, and that's the inerrancy of Scripture. We talk about the battle for the Bible in the early 20th century. The inerrancy of Scripture, the, the, the idea, the fact that the Bible is God's Word, and as such it contains no errors. Uh, it is perfectly trustworthy and authoritative in all matters to which it speaks. That doctrine really became the dividing line for churches, and sadly many churches bought into the Enlightenment uh, thinking, hook, line, and sinker. You know, we, we, we can't square these new scientific theories like evolution with Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we can't see and hear and taste or touch angels. You know, we can't empirically verify most of this stuff. And so there is this attempt to demythologize the Christian faith, essentially to remove the faith component from the faith altogether, to strip away anything that was deemed unreasonable for a modern Uh, educated person to believe. And so instead of the Bible being the authority over you, now you have become the authority over the Bible. And so such churches will sometimes say that the Bible contains the Word of God, but it, it is not itself the Word of God. And so we have to decide, we get to decide which parts are which. So if you don't like what the Bible says about homosexuality, for instance, that part was written by an uneducated first century bigot. But the part about loving your neighbors, we like that. We'll keep that. Now, I give you all this context so we can go back to the three enemies of the soul. Eventually, liberal mainline Protestantism reached the point where they said about the devil, we can't believe in a a literal devil. That's the stuff of fairy tales. Number two, when it comes to the flesh, we definitely don't want to believe that we are all inherently sinful, that sinners deserve and most sinners will actually spend an eternity separated from God in a place like hell. If there's any doctrine we want to get rid of, it's hell. It's going to be the first one to go. 
And so liberal Protestantism essentially redefined and narrowly uh, uh, sort of reconceptualized their understanding of sin into just that third category, the world. And so sin isn't so much a me problem as it is an out there problem. Sin won't keep me personally from a holy, perfect God, as the church had always said. God is too loving and forgiving for that. The real problem of sin is in the world. It's out there. The world is full of it. It's a systemic problem. And in response, evangelical Christianity, the biblical inerrantist, rightly stood up and said, what? Jesus himself interacted with Satan. Are you going to demythologize him next? And many did and, and do. Self-identifying Christians who discredit Jesus' miracles, even his resurrection. They don't believe in a literal, physical historical bodily resurrection, spiritual. And evangelical said, the substitutionary atoning death of Christ in your place, the place of fleshly sinners, that's the very core of the gospel. You take that away, and what are we left with in Christianity? Just another self-help, do-it-yourself religion. But I want to suggest this morning that in our rightful insistence on the personal, individual, internal dimensions of sin, we evangelicals have sometimes swung the pendulum so far the opposite direction that when it comes to that third category, the world, we often neglect the very real, corporate, systemic, external reality of sin as well. The Bible gives us categories for both. Okay, the Bible says there is plenty of sin to go around. Yes, in you individually. Yes, in me personally. But also sin in systems, in institutions, sin in the church, sin in every form, certainly of man-made government in the history of the world. Yes, even democratic republics. Sin in every form of man-made economic systems ever invented. Yes, even capitalism. Scripture affirms that sin really does pervade everything that sinners like you and me touch in this world. And if you think that God only sees and judges us as individuals, that God isn't concerned with corporate sin as well, I would just encourage you to read any of the Old Testament prophets. Like they are exclusively written in the second person plural indictments. Y'all screwed up. Y'all forgot about the orphans. Y'all are neg mis, you know, neglecting, uh, mistreating the poor. And it's about God's judgment against the unjust and oppressive systems and structures that his people have put in place. And so Psalm 31 this morning confronts our modern-day uh, evangelistic, evangelical, uh, individualistic sensibility. Psalm 31 it isn't about David's personal sin. He only mentions it once in verse 10, almost as if to say, listen God, I know I'm not perfect, but... And then he goes on with his list of grievances. Psalm 31 isn't about the devil. Like I could over-spiritualize it this morning and make all these references to David's enemies and his adversaries, his persecutors, all about our fight with Satan, but I think that's a disingenuous reading of the text. No, Psalm 31 is all about the sin in the world. And what do we do as believers with the sin out there? 
I think it's appropriate that we're studying this passage the week of September 11th. That is something we can all agree on, right? There is real evil sin out there. David is being sinned against in Psalm 31. And the question for him, the question for us vicariously this morning is, how will we respond when we are sinned against? Have you ever felt like a victim? Some of y'all hear that word and you immediately, your, your red flags go up, you, you hear Marxism, critical theory, intersectionality. I'm not trying to be political this morning. I'm just trying to say that in the Bible and in real life, there are oppressors and there are victims. And the really interesting thing about Psalm 31 is that the victim here is a king who is presumably the most powerful man in the country. You don't have to be poor, powerless, marginalized, a minority to be a victim. King David was victimized. Jesus was the most powerful man that's ever walked the planet. He was the victim of the, the greatest crime in the history of humanity. The dictionary defines a victim as a person harmed as a result of someone else's action. By that definition, I would go so far as to speculate that we have all been victims at times in our lives. Last week, Polly and I got a letter from our neighborhood association claiming that they never received our check in the mail, and so now we owe a $90 late fee on top of it, or else they're going to send our bill to collections. Polly showed me the picture that she took of the, ch- of the check because this is the second notice she'd gotten, but she still can't prove she put it in the mail, right? So now she's got to drive all the way downtown and physically deliver another check herself, pay the late fee. We are victims of the Postal Service's incompetence. I blame Eli Sandhouse. For those of y'all who know him. A more serious example, I was a victim of a wrongful termination Five years ago now, from my previous job as youth pastor at the secular boarding school in Indiana I came here from, it was essentially religious discrimination. I was let go because my boss was the liberal kind of Christian that I mentioned earlier. I was the evangelical type. She got upset that I was preaching the gospel and telling students they needed Jesus, and so they didn't renew my contract. That's the only reason I'm here in St. Louis right now. What recourse did I have? Her boss was an agnostic, the head of the school. Where do you go when you're the victim of bureaucratic incompetence? To whom do you appeal when you're the victim of workplace discrimination, when the whole system is corrupt? Where do you go when, as a child, you get sexually abused by your own father, verbally abused by your own mother, when the very people charged with protecting you looking out for you are the ones victimizing you? Where do you go when you're the victim of racial discrimination by the police, the very people paid to protect you? Where do you go when you're the victim of spiritual abuse? Met with a whole whole group, big group of folks this past week who are checking out West Hills right now after they got run out of their old church, essentially for questioning the leadership. There was some shady stuff going on in this contingency of 40 or 50 people started asking questions, and they were essentially told that they were in sin for even questioning their elders. Hebrews 13, 17, submit to your your church leaders. Where do you turn when you feel like you have no more recourse? 
when there's nowhere left to turn. King David's answer in Psalm 31 is clear. The believer turns to the Lord. We entrust our lives in His hands. And this psalm divides up into four sections that offer us an outline for understanding how we ought to respond when we're faced with distress, and in particular, distress that is imposed on us by the world, when you are the victim of others' sin, like King David. And so, if you would stand with me one, one, one more time as you're able for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 31, I'll be reading from the ESV translation. And we'll have the words on the screen in front for you as well. Hear the word of the Lord. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy, but you have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its good promises this morning, God, that you have promised us deliverance, redemption, rescue in our time of trouble. God, now as we submit ourselves under the authority of your word, we pray that you might use it to increase our trust in you. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So four things. Four things a Christian will do when he or she is oppressed in times of distress. Number one, before we do anything else, we pray. We turn to the Lord and pray. We, we put our lives in God's hands and we pray. Now, I say this from the start. Please don't mishear me. Putting your life in God's hands, going to God first, does not mean that you go to God only. If you get mugged, you go to God, and then you go to the police. If a drunk driver takes the life of your child, you go to God, and then you go to a Christian counselor. If you catch your husband cheating on you, you go to God, and then you go to the elders of your church. Seek church discipline. Going to God first does not mean going to God only. So please hear me this morning. But it does mean, above all else, it means trusting in the Lord, verse 1. It means trusting Him to be your refuge, your shelter from the storm. Trusting Him, verse 1, to deliver you. David says, God, let me never be put to shame. Shame is public disgrace. The context for Psalm 31, we think, is likely David's being deposed from his throne and exiled from Jerusalem by his own son Absalom. You want to talk about a walk of shame. David lived in an honor-shame culture where experiencing blessing was considered a sign of God's divine favor, but experiencing troubles signifies God's judgment. And so David says, God, I know you don't work like that. God, I know you're not some impersonal uh, karma uh, distributor. That sometimes the wicked really do prosper in this life. Sometimes the righteous really do suffer in this world that we live in. Brokenness. But God, they don't know that. So the world is going to look at my suffering and my shame and say, man, that David... He must really be a sinner. And so God, I pray, would you deliver me? Incline your ear. Listen to me. Rescue me speedily. Be my rock of refuge. My strong fortress. These are vivid, powerful images of God's protection and his safety. And then David shifts in verse 3 from a prayer of petition to a prayer of thanksgiving. He shifts from asking to proclaiming. He says, you are my rock and my fortress. You are my refuge. You take me out of their net. He says, you lead me. You guide me. And why does God do it? Verse 3, for your name's sake. God delivers us primarily for his own glory. Because God gets glory, verse 5, from redeeming 
sinners and proving that he truly is a faithful God. You remember Psalm 23 from a few weeks ago. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake, right? John Piper recognizes there's a great sense of confidence that arises from the conviction that God's honor is at stake in the way that he is leading my life. That should give us confidence, friends. It is because of that confidence that David can declare in verse 5, into your hand, God, do I commit my spirit. God, I am trusting you and you alone. In my flesh, I want to take matters into my own hands. In, in my natural reaction is to cling to and try and desperately leverage whatever little power I have remaining. You try and oppress me with late fees, you better lawyer up. Right? You, you try and uh, fire me on, uh, on trumped up charges, right? I'll take matters into my own hands. But David models for us here the kind of freedom that comes from simply turning it over to God and trusting Him for deliverance. Saying, I commit my spirit into the hands of the one who made it and who actually has the power to redeem it. That's what he says in verse 5. He says, you have redeemed me. Past tense. And he's going to turn around in verse 9 and continue on praying, God, I'm still in distress. So what's going on here? Scholars call this the prophetic perfect verb tense in, uh, in verse 5 there, where the past tense is used of an event like redemption here that is still yet to occur in the future so as to emphasize the author's certainty that it will actually happen, that it's as good as done. If God said it, it's as good as done. And because of that certainty, God has promised deliverance. David is resolute in verse 6 about where his hope truly lies. David lays out the options for us. Right? There's only two options. When life gets tough, where are you going to turn? Two options. Ready for them? Verse 6, number one, trust in the Lord. David says, that's my pick. Or number two, trust in worthless idols. Everything else you turn to and trust in when you are in distress, friends, your bank account, your job security, your physical strength, your, your financial strength, your, your intelligence, your family, your fill in the blank. David says, all of it, let's call it what it is, it's idolatry. It's a violation of God's top two commandments. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Trust in Yahweh alone. And number two, don't make idols. If you are stressed out about coronavirus and you keep running to cable news and running to the CDC and running to social media, David says you might as well go ahead and build a golden calf. It's idolatry. God is our refuge and our fortress. He is the one you want to run to. Don't run to anyone or anything else. It's worthless. The word in Hebrew means empty, vain. It's useless. Everything else will inevitably let you down. And so David says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. But the word hate, he's not expressing a personal vindictive hatred. The word means to oppose to rebuke, to have nothing to do with. I will not join them in their idolatry. Instead, David says, verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad 
in your steadfast love. In God's chesed, His covenant love. God is bound to David by His covenant, by His own name. When I made a covenant to my wife, I am bound to her. When I said I do, I put my name on it. My, name, my honor is at stake now, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, till death do us part. Friends, if you are in Christ this morning, you can rejoice. Be glad, David says, that no matter how dark your life seems to get, that no matter how much the world seems to oppress you, that no matter how alone and abandoned you may feel. Listen, feelings are temporary. They are fleeting. Feelings, you cannot trust your feelings. You know what you can trust? You can trust God's covenant love for you. The Almighty God of the universe has bound Himself to you by His name in covenant faithfulness. No matter how bad your life seems to get, you can say with David, in the midst of your trials, I will rejoice and be glad because, verse 7, God sees my suffering. Still in verse 7, He knows my pain. Not just intellectually. The Hebrew word here is yada. It's the same word the Bible uses euphemistically for sexual intercourse, knowing one another in the biblical sense. God is intimately uh, knowing my distress. God knows our suffering because He tasted it in His death on the cross. Verse 8, God has promised to never leave or forsake me. And he has, verse 8, set my feet on a broad place. Literally an uncramped space. You imagine being in a room where the walls are closing in slowly on you. Some of y'all, that's your worst fear. You're claustrophobics, right? David says, life feels that way sometimes. God plucks us out and he has delivered me from the shadow of death and set me back in a broad spacious place david says i can trust his promises that he has plans to prosper me and not harm me jeremiah 29 13 that he is working all things together for my good romans 8 28 his promises are as good as done even though as we see here in verses 9 through 13, at present, David is still in the crucible. And so after prayer, number one, then number two, we pose our problem to God. That's verses 9 through 13. Be honest about your situation. We saw this in Psalm 13 a few weeks ago. This good news that Christianity is such an honest and real faith. It doesn't just try and slap a smiley face on our pain. Our faith allows us and actually invites us to get real with God about our hurts. We noted it again last week in Psalm chapter 30. God doesn't promise to remove your sadness. Weeping may tarry for the night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. God promises not to remove sadness, but to redeem it. God collects our tears in his bottle, the psalmist says, and ultimately he promises to right every wrong. But in the meantime, in the here and now, there is still lots of crying. 
Like enough at times, verse 9, to make your eyes feel like they're literally wasting away from grief. Have you ever cried so much that it hurt? Has anyone ever cried so much you literally ran out of tears? I didn't know that was possible. I thought it was like an expression until I got there, right? David says, not just my eyes, but my soul and my body, verse 9. He says, verse 10, my whole life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. The health and wealth and happiness gospel is just stupid. God let King David go years on end filled with sorrow. Some of you in this room this morning may go the rest of your lives living with a constant low-grade Sorrow, sadness, because of a loved one you've lost, because of of, uh, an abuse you've suffered. Yes, redemption is possible. But David says, for years, I've spent my life with sorrow. He says, my strength fails because of my iniquity. In other words, in my sin, I don't even have the strength to buck up and fight back against my oppression says my bones waste away why verse 11 because of my adversaries because of all my adversaries i have become a reproach especially to my neighbors an object of dread to my acquaintances my friends those who see me in the street flee from me even david's friends have turned their backs on him that's always the worst part, right? For any of us who've gone through these kinds of dark nights of the soul, you you expect that kind of rejection from your adversaries, from those who don't like you, but when your friends desert you. I remember when I was in middle school and my father left our family, I stopped getting invited to a lot of sleepovers, a lot of birthday parties, so I felt like I just constantly had this cloud hanging over me. And who wants to bring that to their birthday party? So my former friends would see me in the street, would see me in the schools of hall, uh, the halls of school, and flee from me. Have you been there? Have you, have you been in that kind of a place like David in verse 12? where you feel like I've been forgotten, like one who is dead, I might as well be dead. I've become like a broken vessel. I'm broken. This is why people pray the Psalms. The Psalms give us language for emotions that in our moments of weakness like this, we can't even find the words to express on our own. So we turn there, read Verse 13, I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. There are real oppressors in this world, victimizers in this world. There are advantageous people out there who want to capitalize on your distress, despair, ruin. Whether you are a king with a crown they want, like David. They're predatory loan sharks trying to sell you a subprime mortgage. There are plotters and schemers out there. And so David prays, number one, he 
poses his problems to God, number two. And then number three, guess what? He prays some more. Pray again. He returns to prayer in verses 14 through 18. And he trusts God to deliver him. I want you to notice the repetition here in verses 14 through 18 of what we already read in verses 1 through 8. Look at this this juxtaposition. Verse 1, let me never be put to shame. Verse 17, let me not be put to shame. Verse 2, come quickly to my rescue. Save me. Verses 15 through 16, deliver me. Save me. Verses 2 through 4, my rock of refuge, a strong fortress. Verse 14, you are my God. Verse 4, Flee from me. Verse 15, deliver me from. I'm sorry, free me from. Deliver me from. Verse 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. Verse 15, my times are in your hands. Verse 6, I trust in the Lord. Verse 14, I trust in you, O Lord. Verse 7, in your love. Verse 16, in your unfailing love. Why the redundancy? I think the point here is that we can't just pray once and be done. Like, okay. I pray, God, it's in your hands now. In our times of distress, we have got to keep clinging to God, remain constant in our dependence on the Lord. So you start with prayer, and you end with prayer, and you pray at every step along the way. David cries out again, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. James Johnston notes in his commentary, when David says here, my times are in your hand, he's not shrugging his shoulder like a laid-back surfer. Whatever, dude. He's not emptying himself of expectations like an Eastern mystic who says, you are sad because you want and do not get. If you do not want, then you will not be sad. He is not fatalistic like the Muslim who says, inshallah, it's in God's hands. Rather, this is a towering declaration of David's trust. David says, you are my God. And he knows God will rescue him because of his steadfast love, his covenant loyalty. But David trust that God will do it in his own timing. He prays, Lord, rescue me when you know the time is best. I would like for you to rescue me today, but I trust you if I have to wait until tomorrow or next week. I may not receive the email I need for another six months. You may not rescue me in this whole life If I go to my grave still waiting for your promise, I will trust you. My times are in your hands. And God's hands are the safest place in the world you can be. There's no better place to trust your life. Now, before we move on to our last point, point number four, what what do we make of verse 17 here? Where David says, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. There are entire psalms in the Bible that are essentially prayers that God would send the wicked to hell. How do we square that with Jesus' command in the New Testament to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? I think we have to go back to this whole feelings not being trustworthy thing. 
the Bible gives us permission here. Feelings are not inherently bad. Bible gives us permission to be brutally honest, express our feelings. You don't have to sugarcoat it. God knows your heart anyway. God knows that you want your sexual assaulter to burn in hell. God knows that you want your child's drug dealer to rot in hell. And those feelings are perfectly natural, but that doesn't make them godly. In fact, the Bible says our nature, our sin nature, our flesh is diametrically opposed to God's nature. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, there is nothing good in me innately. Right? And so if I am going to follow in the footsteps of a Savior who prayed while he hung on that cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If I'm going to follow him and be able to pray that prayer for my adversaries, when the world oppresses me, I'm going to have to depend on him for that kind of strength. That kind of, that kind of strength to pray that, to forgive, is not going to come from inside me. To forgive the drunk driver who killed my child? No. Uh-uh. I want them to burn. But part of what it means to trust God in God to deliver you is to leave justice to him as well. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lastly, point number four. Pray, pose your problems to God, pray again, and then praise God. We praise God. We thank God when he does deliver us. Or better yet, like King David, thank him before he delivers you. Because you know it's as good as done, even when you're in the middle of your distress. Listen to how David extols the Lord here. I just read for you again these beautiful verses of praise. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Blessed be the Lord, for he has done wondrously. He's shown his steadfast love to me. You heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried for your help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong, be strong, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Johnston says, the aim of this entire chapter is, right there in verse 23, 24, is for you to be strong. The purpose of the whole song is to encourage you to be strong, to be courageous, because you can trust that in your time of need, God will deliver you. That as the old hymn goes, when doubt and fear assail me and bend my spirit low, I know there is a Savior to whom I e'er can go. The story is told of a house that caught on fire 
And a young boy was trapped inside and forced to flee up onto the roof. His father had escaped already, was on the ground below him with his arms outstretched, calling to his son, jump, I'll catch you. The boy had to jump to save his life, but all the boy could see was smoke and flames and blackness. And so he was afraid to leave the roof. His father kept yelling to him, son, jump, I will catch you. But the boy yelled back, I don't want to, Daddy. I can't see you. His father called back, Son, jump. You don't have to see me. I can see you. Friends, do you know this morning that you have a father who sees you? Who sees you in your hurt? Sees you in your pain? that He knows you. He knows the worst of what the world can throw at us intimately. And that He has promised to deliver you in your time of greatest need that you can trust Him. Listen, we will all, if you live long enough in this dumpster fire world that we live in these days, where the whole world seems like just one giant roof on fire out there, right? You will feel like you're metaphorically caught on the roof with no more recourse. Where do I turn? The world will oppress you. Jesus stands ready to catch you. The question is, will you jump to him? Psalm 34, 19 acknowledges many are the afflictions of the righteous. God has not promised us a life of comfort and ease as Christians. Actually, just the opposite. Jesus said, if you follow me, you will have troubles in this world. But, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But you still have to jump. Will you jump this morning? Let's pray.